Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Stephen H. Wilson Ryan Levy Renee Wilson Michael Lamangelo with original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now... Episode 9! Hi, this is J.C. Hutchins, author of the podcast novel trilogy Seventh Son and editor of Seventh Son Obsidian, both available at my website, jchutchins.net. You're listening to Antithesis Book One, and this is the story so far. On space station Nineveh, Josh Kyle has built himself a web of informants and precautions. The center of that web is his bar, Phalanx, where he collects information vital to the cause of colonial independence. Information like the access codes for the Persian military command complex which he's been trying to get his hands on for years. Meanwhile, last time we saw Percy Scott, he'd moved on from mutilating his wife in a restroom to seducing a vulnerable point in the Lunar Dock Workers Union. He does, after all, have his orders. On the outer edge of human civilization, Jim Hartman and his wife Alyssa have fled to Mars before retaliation from their former employer, before whoever he sends after them makes them both as dead as their marriage. The exhaust towers on the gigantic atmosphere processing centers jutted straight up out of the base of the northern polar crater like the horns of a great beast. It thumped endlessly, pumping pollutants and toxins and heavy gases into the thin Martian atmosphere. To keep the machines fed, the Martian colonial authority offered a standard bounty in the only viable currencies this far out on the edge of civilization. Uranium, oxygen, food, and ice. Any prospector driving a hydrocarbon-rich comet or asteroid into orbit was supplied with enough to survive in space for months. Once in orbit, the asteroid hydrocarbons were bought by Phobos Station, where they were processed and sent down as dirty as possible to be cooked for manufacturing fuel. Then to the furnaces to smelt the iron-rich crust of Mars as quick as they could, turning out usable steel and releasing oxygen as the rust dust was refined. The rest was given to power plants to produce the precious pollution that would, year by year, grow thicker, holding in more heat and deflecting more of the deadly solar winds. As for prospectors, what they got wasn't a lot in the grand scheme, but it was all that mattered to the people who made their living out beyond the reach of all authority, making life work in hostile conditions on their own terms. The pioneers on Mars looked like well-fed city folk by comparison. They liked it that way, and it was good that they did. Without them, Mars would stay forever red and cold. Jim knew. He'd met a few and he hoped he didn't need to again. 
The rhythm from the machines pounded deep into the Martian soil. In the dome two miles away, he could feel their constant, steady quake, like walking on the roof of a discotheque. On the other hand, Europe's withdrawal a year earlier had left this dome half-empty. Housing was cheap, he reasoned, because no one liked living in a ghost town. But he liked the look of desolation through the dome. It seemed appropriate, and he just wished that he'd lived a little longer before he'd been forced to retire to a graveyard. The moderate gravity meant that cargo could be catapulted into orbit using excess energy from the atmosphere processors, which kept the Martian mining company growing at an impressive rate. The fact that the asteroid belt had opened up since the Europeans had stopped choking the prospectors for port taxes, and that more people came through now than ever before, didn't make an impression on Jim. The domes would not stay underpopulated for long. Indeed, they were beginning to fill up once again with new workers looking for less crowded conditions than could be had on Earth. But this also failed to make a dent in Jim's armor. He was here for one reason only. It was the only dome on the planet where he could get fresh spices. And he was sick of cooking without them. Year-old dried herbs and freeze-dried cloves and cinnamon wouldn't do. Now, it was his turn to do the shopping. Not because he particularly wanted to, but because Allie was so listless that she would live on prepackaged rations if he let her. If he wanted to do any cooking, he had to do the shopping himself. He'd be damned if he was going to stoop to shopping in the South Dome where they lived, with their instant coffee and their dried essential oils and their fucking prepackaged rations. Uh, he didn't need to ask directions to the fabled Spice Bazaar. His nose told him the way. Most of the herbs and spices grown on Mars were shipped off-world and sold to prospectors or used at Phobos Station, the orbital residential base for those who worked in the ore and mineral processing center on Phobos itself. This was the one dome that kept what it grew for itself. They could afford to. They had the biggest mining economy on the planet, harvesting iron from the soil and mining their true wealth from the polar crater's fissures. Ice. There it was! A hectare of heaven piled in crates and stacked in rows, each vendor selling what grew on her own farm, or at least the farm she worked for. He strolled through the bazaar, sniffing and examining the local fare. It wasn't what he was used to getting in California, or even on Sidon, but it would do. After months of fake food, it would more than do. What he really wanted was curry powder, or its constituents. Dried hot chilies, ginger, cardamom, cumin... He forced himself to stop mentally repeating the list. It was torture lusting for the spices he couldn't find. He picked up a bundle of cinnamon from an older vendor selling nothing but cinnamon and anise, bunches of mint and basil and rosemary from an adorable little girl that reminded him of someone he'd rather forget. He kept walking, but the booths flew by too quickly, and he wasn't finding what he needed. Hector wasn't enough. The growers didn't have enough imagination, though the soil was too unforgiving. He looked down at the paltry selection in his bag and sighed. It would be better than what he'd had to work with, but it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't last a week, and he couldn't afford to come up here every week. And he couldn't bear to get three times as much of everything and just cook the same dishes over and over. It was like meeting the woman of your dreams at twenty and only having one night with her. It wasn't fair. He shook his head softly and closed the bag and walked out towards the north. He might as well check in with the local police department to see if there was any extra work they needed a subcontract on. As he was passing the last of the booths, head down, watching his feet, a smell caught his nostrils. 
He stopped suddenly and sniffed again, hoping to God his nose... It was ginger. Fresh ginger, still in its skin. He looked up and to his left, barely daring to believe what he saw, but there it was, an entire bushel of ginger virtually overflowing in front of him, and next to it, under glass, black and green cardamom. Next to that, black peppercorns. Dried chilies hung on a rope across the front of the booth. A barrel of cumin seeds, bags of turmeric powder, baskets of hibiscus blossoms, dozens of other whole spices that he couldn't distinguish from four meters away, and that he wouldn't dare enumerate if he could. He couldn't move towards it. He didn't dare, for fear the mirage would evaporate as soon as he touched it. But there it was, and with it the vendor, a sprightly, smiling woman in her twenties, hair dark and curly as grape tendrils, falling down her back and covering her simple white dress. She saw him gawking and smiled. She laughed like wind through crystal. Don't look at me like that. I'm not a ghost. As if she'd thrown a switch, Jim found that he could move again. He walked cautiously over to the stand and trying not to seem like a parched man at a spring, set about taking as much of each as he thought he could justify to Allie. They'd definitely need some quick cash after this, but he didn't care. They'd eat real food. They'd smell the smells of their younger, happier days. Maybe it would make the apartment less cold for a few hours every day. He did his best to avoid eye contact with the effervescent woman behind the bounty, but she danced softly to sitar music that came through the speakers hung in the booth to catch the attention of customers on the prowl and he found it difficult to look away. As he packed in the last of his purchases and handed over his credit jack, he found himself talking, against his better judgment. Where'd you grow all this? She put his jack into a reader and punched in the final amount. We have a commune east dome. There aren't many other farmers over there, so we have our pick of the soil and enough water to grow what we like. But why these? These are the spices that remind you you are alive. Every one of them connects you to the vital source, lets you feel the universe. Come again? He'd cooked with these spices since he was a boy. They were wonderful. They were what he lived for, or all he had left to live for anymore. He ached when he went without them, but they were hardly a religious experience. Well, if you must have it in crass scientific terms. She practically spat the word scientific. Every one of them is psychoactive. Why do you think they come out of India? Their food tastes like it was made for the gods because it made people see them. Uh, I never noticed it. She'd caught him flat-footed, but he blundered on, praying that she'd finish running his jack and let him go. You're spending too much time on perfection and not letting yourself go when you eat it. Try it. And here... She handed him a bag of pebble-sized black seeds. Make a cake with these for dessert. They'll help. On the house, if you don't tell the elders. Jim held the seeds up and looked closely at them. These are... Morning glory seeds. Like the Aztec priests used. Jim remembered that much of his higher education, at least. Psychedelics weren't his thing, but he didn't want to be rude to this beautiful creature who had been his salvation. There's a card in the bag. Call me when you run out of anything, and I'll put another packet together for you. Judging by the way you shop, you'll be through all your cumin in no time. Jim blushed. He did overuse cumin, though how she'd know was anyone's guess. I will. Thank you. He smiled back at her. Well, then, I hope you'll call soon. Thanks for coming by. She gracefully dismissed him and turned her attention to a customer at the neighboring booth who was casting discreet glances at the chilies and their vendor. Hi, how you doing? Can I help you with anything? Sure, yeah. 
on over. Jim walked away, gliding over the concrete ground, his senses saturated with the smells and sights of the bazaar. He nearly boarded the tube before he remembered to check in with the police for new work. Breathing a sigh of relief that there would be one less thing to fight about, he left the transport station and went directly to talk to the cops. Allie was going to kill him for spending so much on food. And this time, he didn't give a damn. There would be curry tonight. The gold was worn. The once serrated edges had been rubbed smooth with centuries of use as the coin passed through thousands, if not millions, of fingers. How old it was exactly wasn't something he cared to guess. The date had long since worn off, and guessing games didn't interest him. But what did survive was unmistakable. The goddess Libertas, strong and proud, backed on the other side by a bald eagle with its wings unfurled. Percy rolled the coin idly along the back of his fingers. Somewhere, on the flight from Luna, in the cold nothingness between planets, he had found his detachment again. A good agent was cold, and he'd been one long enough to know that personal feelings had to be put aside until the assignment was over. There couldn't be another lapse like he'd had on Luna. Sloppy business. The little time he'd spent with Walters had told him more than he'd expected to find. The information Bill gave him and the files he'd seen at the agency last time he was in Langley had led him to believe that there was only a scattered underground revolutionary movement. In truth, the loonies had built a subtle and anticipatory resistance network that could pose a large problem if the U.S. moved against them. He had sent off a preliminary report before he left Luna. It helped steady his nerves. His disgust at the colonists' arrogance, using this precious symbol of liberty as the emblem for their laughable resistance, was something he could control. For now. His part was soon done, anyway. And then, he could do what he pleased. He could even go home, to Marion. He'd find some way to explain it to her. And to Bill... He'd find some way to repay Bill for this assignment. He took a breath, being careful to keep his exterior placid and nondescript. He looked down at the cherrywood tile bar, waiting for the barkeep to make it down the line of patrons to him. At least it was an assignment that would give him very deep, very personal satisfaction. The colonists would pay for it soon enough. The coin was his way in. As extensive as the resistance movement was, Walters had just the right weakness for Percy to pry his way in. The right combination of flattery, pillow talk, and short cons had turned him over, and, once cultivated, the man proved easy to ply. Too easy. Three days to establish trust, two to let some minor secrets slip so that he'd be brought into the circle. Poor Walters, a man who had too much love for the leaf and whose love for his fellow men proved his undoing. Percy's stomach recoiled at the memory of it, but the leaf did its work, and Percy eventually got what he was looking for. The coin, and how it needed to be used. And a new identity. Scott Walters, as Percy's new ID named him, was now resting fingerless in a gorge about an hour's hike from an airlock on Luna. Too bad he couldn't leave the fingers, too. Percy didn't like having that kind of impurity wedded to his flesh. But he was here, 
as Scott Walters, wearing another man's fingertips, waiting on a station named after the place that God would not forsake, despite the sound advice of his chosen prophet. In this bar run by the vilest of traitors, whose perverted mind had named it after the strength of the Roman army. No phalanx held forever, and Percy was here to open up a gap in its shield. What can I get for you, sir? Double bourbon, no ice. The bartender nodded and poured the drink. Percy handed him the coin and thanked him. The barman barely glanced at the worn coin. It was obviously a signal he knew well. He gave Percy an imperceptible nod and slipped him a cardboard coaster for the drink. Through the amber of the drink, Percy read a table number, invisible without the color filter. Reuben Briggs certainly had his employees trained well. Percy took his drink and made his way through the throngs to a table at the back of the room, privately savoring the duplicity in the air. People came here to tell secrets, as men have done in bars since time began. Some were raucously relaying exaggerated accounts of personal glory, others were whispering quietly. Percy knew Briggs' reputation. The man had never met a listening device he didn't like. It might cause more than a bit of a stir if the patrons in this innocent-looking establishment were told how many bugs were likely watching this room at any one moment. He hadn't been here since right after the place opened two years ago, and even then it was a shithole. Like Ecuador had been before the elevator was built, like Timbuktu in Paris, it was a dirty place where everyone could be trusted to work their own angle. There was something comforting in that. Something that elevated it in his mind above the false, smarmy obsequiousness of New England or of Washington. Yes, it was good to be back on Nineveh, doing what Nineveh was designed to allow people to do. Sidon was a joke. If he hadn't needed his sabbatical, he never would have set foot in that pseudo-state with its totalitarian security force. Damn dirty business, too. Percy took a nip from his shot glass. The bourbon was stronger than it was tasty. Exactly what he needed to numb his uncooperative guilt. He reached the table and sat down, cataloging the bugs and moles in the place, rehearsing to himself everything he'd been able to scrape together on what Briggs had been up to. He was calling himself Joss Kyle now, and he would be as cagey as ever. Percy's PPD vibrated on his hip. He checked his messages. There was only one. A single word. Commitment. So he wouldn't have to string Briggs along for long. So much the better. When will that sniveling prick get here? It was embarrassing to have his talents wasted on undermining such a sloppy operation. Hiring subcontractors was no way to start a war. You never knew when they'd be working the other side. But that was exactly how Briggs' masters were going about things. Organized crime, defectors closely watched, probably some double-agent Persian spies and LOXCOR employees looking to turn an extra buck. A fragile tower, easily toppled. Finally! Percy saw Briggs, no, Kyle, he corrected himself, making his way through the crowd. The simpering, slimy fuck still walked like a hunted man, but it had grown so imperceptible that no one but a hunter could tell. He'd gained a little weight, but he still looked quite gaunt, not much different from the photos in the file Bill had forwarded him. An honorless cretin sneaking his way across the solar system. Percy nodded his head and finished his drink as Joss sat down. Okay, Scott, I got your message. What's so goddamn important you had to fly all the way from Luna to deliver it in person? 
Joss Kyle was not in an amiable mood. Good. If Percy played the game right, he'd have the pleasure of watching the worm squirm before he stuck him on the hook. You had a bounty out? Percy kept his manner meek and cagey. Disarming. Confidence would arouse suspicion. I have a lot of bounties out. Which one do you think you qualify for? Is it safe to talk openly? Keep up the officiousness, Briggs. Ratchet it up till you're choking on it. Of course it's safe. Now. Kyle looked at him levelly. Tell me what it is, or fuck off. Percy pulled a small polymer prism out of his left shirt sleeve. All the access codes you need to hack into the Persian military intelligence server. As Percy turned it over in his hands, Joss eyed it suspiciously. Where did you get it? I'm in ship maintenance. I meet a lot of people doing what I do. Some people talk too much. I can't tell you much more than that. You'll have to do better. Oh, you don't have to worry about anyone knowing it's missing. Convince me. The man I got it from... Percy made like he was a bit frightened. ...is fuel pump ruptured right after takeoff. As far as anyone knows, this... He indicated the prism. ...died with him. Just snorted. He obviously didn't buy the story. It died with him, did it? It was big news all over Luna City. First vessel explosion ever recorded over Grissom Space Center. The Aladdin. Persian transport. It would check out, but Percy knew it wouldn't be necessary. The right delivery should convince him. Kyle was a man who thought he could read anyone. When can I get paid? A shadow crossed Kyle's face. Was it approval or shock? He must be pleased. He's not known for squeamishness. You'll get your payment once the data's validity is established. Joss reached across and snatched the crystal from Percy's hand, then studied him for a moment, sizing him up. If you want some work while you're here, drop by every few hours. There may be something for a man with sharp eyes. When I want you, the bartender will serve you scotch instead of bourbon. Meet me in the tram an hour after you get the signal. Joss did leave, but Percy caught his wrist. One more thing. There's a lot of publicity on Luna. Someone's been asking questions, rousting other people in my cell. They've got a picture out of a guy that looks kind of like you. Swallow this, asshole. Joss looked incredulously at him for a moment. What would make you think I'd give a damn about what happens on Luna? I don't. In fact, I'd be happy to kill you right now, but at the moment, you're more useful alive. But passing on information is what I can do. <laughs> Apparently, that's not all you can do. Percy sat calmly as Joss looked him up and down, apparently trying to decide what to make of him. He relished Joss's indecision. The prick was squirming like a skewered asp. The moment didn't last long. Go find yourself a bunk. I'll be in touch. Joss pulled free of Percy's grip and walked measuredly back to the room behind the bar. Presumably his office. Percy sat back, allowing himself another dark smile. Before he stood and strode from the bar, there was much to prepare for. Joss burst through the door and tossed the crystal to his assistant. Mondo, I want this checked out. Make sure it's accurate. Check for booby traps, back channels, bots, worms, parasites, taps, or anything else malicious you can think of. Let me know what you find. Mondo was a good kid, one of the best data specialists he'd met in his 20 years of public service, 15 years of academia, and 3 years on the run. Timetable? Make it quick, but don't rush. I want certainty. If this checks out, message me, day or night. Sit, sit, Joss. I'm on it. Make it stop. God, why can't you speak fucking English? Joss muttered under his breath. 
The mishmash dialect Mandu had brought from Nigeria, pulled from Afrikaans, English, French, Farsi, Hindi, and a mass of other natural and programming languages combined with an insufferable desire to shorten every word until it was unintelligible. It was the kind of silliness that could turn I'll message you as soon as possible into Big us up. It was almost enough to make one despair of civilization ever carrying on. Almost. Was it Joss? Nothing, nothing. Joss sat down at his workstation and resumed his review of the tape summaries. Most of it he could do automatically. 90% of what raced across his screen in transcription notes was uninteresting, useless, or redundant. The remaining 10% he had to sort through carefully, but it wasn't anything he had a lot of patience for at the minute. There were a few interesting new bits on the Chief of Security, which might lower the cost of bribes or be worth trading for a favor at some point. His mind wasn't on the work. There was something about this Scott Walters character that stuck in his mind like a crumb of dry bread behind his tonsils. He needed to figure out what it was. It wasn't a cold night. This climate-controlled world kept a more or less constant 22 degrees, varying a bit by season to suit the crops in the green belt. It was rarely enough to necessitate a coat, but Joss grabbed his trench off the hook behind the wall and donned it nonetheless. He relished the heavy feel of it, surreptitiously checking the arsenal hidden within the folds and seams. It was warm, almost uncomfortably so, but he'd not yet found an adequate substitute. Besides, this coat had seen him safely from the sewers of Luna to the cardrooms of Sidon, and he preferred the feeling of loyalty to an old friend, even an inanimate one. There were few enough of any other kind left to him in the solar system. He tugged smartly on the lapels, straightening its fit, then spoke over his shoulder to his associates. I gotta go run some errands, Mondu, then I think I'll head home. I'll be in tomorrow if you don't have anything for me before then. Okay, show back. You too. Joss rolled his eyes and shook his head to himself as he donned his hat and stepped out into the bar. The night still had some hours left in it, but in this 24-hour world... Nothing ever really closed. Oh, there were a couple of stretches here and there throughout the day when phalanx could be reliably found empty, but they never lasted long. It was as good a home as any. It was better than the one he'd left behind. Here, there was no one tugging at his shirt tails or screaming at him for not being around long enough. There was no coldness waiting for him in his bed that was more impersonal than the rank prostitution of politicking in the White House or in the State Department. Dwelling on the pleasanter memories from earlier times wasn't much worth the effort anymore. Trying to separate the real memories from his fantasies about them made him feel like a blind man in a dark room trying to catch a ghost with a butterfly net. Sentiment is futility. It was his creed. It kept him alive. He couldn't afford another way, particularly not now that he was finally doing something more valuable than saving his own skin. But the face of Scott Walters wouldn't go away. His nightly walk home kept him in good exercise. He actually found it easier to get exercise on this spinning tin can in the sky than he ever had on the Capitol Mall that had been designed for that purpose. Here, there were no chauffeurs and only one train system and the lifts. Even so, his route tonight was deliberately circuitous. He'd been too many weeks without grounding, working on analytical problems that Cassie had passed down, reviewing the tapes, putting together emergency supply lines for the coming months and years. Tonight, he needed to walk a long, long way. Give himself time to process whatever it was the back of his mind was chewing on. Time to think and unwind, walk in the streets, remember the general feeling of the place, ground himself, 
to the street and figure out what piece it was that didn't seem to fit. The crumb stayed behind his tonsil. It wouldn't dislodge, and it wouldn't stop scratching. Down seven levels to the skin of the station where the gravity was most oppressive. The fitness and entertainment centers were here, at the end of the station nearest the docking ring. Farther towards the industrial end of the station, the entertainment venues gave way to low-rent housing and industrial works that required normal gravity to function properly. He walked through the athletic district, then the adult entertainment district, known affectionately as the zoo, and then further on the place for family entertainments, till he'd circled fully halfway round the station. He walked blankly, his hat brim pulled low, his shoulders slumped forward. He barely bothered to keep tabs on the people around him, scanning only for weapons and drunks and taking note of other potential threats. Beyond that, he didn't bother with his normal level of observation. Nothing was shaking that crumb loose, and it itched. Nineveh had four major spoke lifts every quarter mile along the axis of the station. Elevators that ran along structural struts from the outer hull to the central bore where the trams ran constantly. The longer route was doing him no good. What he really wanted was a good wank and some rest to clear his head. There would be nothing to do until the codes were verified anyhow. Then, if they passed muster, he could keep Walters around for a while. There was always extra work, and it would give him a chance to check the men out more thoroughly. Joss gave up his extended trek, stepped inside the nearest lift, and rode it up through the lightning gravity to the near weightlessness of the tram terminal. The commanding view over the green belt did nothing to quiet his mind. Something was desperately wrong. He turned Walter's words over in his mind again and again, trying to find the problem. Had he seen his face before? Perhaps. But where? He couldn't get to it. Any time he tried, the old terror of a hunted man welled up inside him like spoiled gin. Leave it alone, you stubborn fool. Let it come on its own. Joss stepped off his lift and walked halfway across the hall to the special purpose elevator designed to go up to the Skyway Terminal level without crushing the occupant between the stationary axis and the rest of the spinning station. Zero-G always made Joss a little queasy, but he hadn't gotten space-sick since the first freefall flight on the shuttle from Earth to Sidon. All he had to do was close his eyes for a few seconds and visualize himself floating under the surface of a swimming pool. Freefall was only slightly more disorienting than swimming. Too bad I never took up skydiving or this would be old hat by now. He took his hat off and held it in his hand to keep it from floating away. The next train arrived shortly, and Joss nudged himself in among a couple dozen other passengers. It was getting late, and the tram was barely occupied. The greenbelt light pipes had already dimmed to a simulation of endless twilight. It was the closest it ever got to night on this spinning tin can. Out between planets, the sky was always black. But here, in this artificial world, night never came. Joss found he missed its finality, its cocoon that concentrated the mind. It was a small price to pay for being alive. There were benches lined up on the floor and the ceiling with belts on them. The tram only traveled at 40 kph, so the acceleration and deceleration were pretty mild. Even so, in zero-g, objects and passengers had a propensity to go flying at the mildest touch. Joss chose the couch nearest the exit hatch and strapped in, resting his hand on the cushion behind him and awaiting the stomach-quieting burst of acceleration. In 12 minutes and three stops, he'd be a few steps from home. Home. The first place that had felt like home in longer than he could remember. A lower-rent district where people tended not to ask questions. 
A place where he could lease four comfortable suites next to each other and link them into a single apartment, gradually renovating it from the bunker formula of cheap station rooms into a proper abode. A hobbit hole. Warm. Filled with books. Emptied of all the shit out in the world. The acceleration hit hard. A full G pressed on Joss's lungs and he found himself suddenly on his back, staring up at the front of the cabin a hundred feet above him. He still took a juvenile glee in the acceleration. It reminded him of his youth, driving motorbikes over the hills of his parents' country estate, gunning the engines as hard as he could. From nine to fifteen years, he'd never begrudged a moment of the extensive work it took to keep the antique Honda in order or hunting down gasoline for it. After a couple of seconds, the harsh acceleration abated, and Joss let his mind wander as his body floated against the restraints. The leaves would be blooming soon in Plymouth. Another couple weeks, maybe three, school would be out for summer, then start again. Eventually, Christmas would come. Closing his eyes wouldn't allow him to run away from the ghosts that tried to come flooding back. The rhythm of the train, the hum of the electromagnets overhead, and the seesaw motion of the acceleration through the station let him slip away for a few minutes into a past he couldn't revisit. He breathed evenly while the station spun lazily about its axis, an autumn merry-go-round in a void without seasons. You've been listening to Episode 9 of Antithesis, Book 1, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. Additional music by Dan Sawyer. This episode starred Stephen H. Wilson as Percy Scott, Brian Levy as Jim, Renee Wilson as Marjorie, and Michael Lamangelo as The Barkeep. Some sounds courtesy the Freesound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008 Kitty Nikian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008 Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Mmm, cinnamon, cumin, hot chilies, curry. I'm gonna have to go cook some good vindaloo once I'm done here. With episode 9, we're one-third of the way through book 1, and once it's done, well, there's a lot more where that came from. For those of you who listened to The Man in the Rain and have been asking after Mondu, here he is. It feels good hitting this point in the story where he comes in. After that prequel, it's like visiting an old friend again. If you still haven't heard the story where Mondu appears, it's on the feed between Episode 1 and Episode 2. It's an origin story, and it tells you some things that will let you in on the joke and the suspense of predestination just a little bit more. I hope two episodes this week makes up for my previous delinquency. I'll be out of town next week, but the podcast should still drop on time. If it doesn't, I may have to seriously re-examine my cron scripting abilities. If you don't understand, don't worry, it's a Linux geek thing. I gotta take a few seconds here and send a shout out to all the folks who are following me on Twitter. I'm not even gonna try to name you because there have been so many in the last couple of days that I need up the whole show. But welcome to the party. I'm always up for a friendly tete-a-tete, and if you send me feedback via Twitter, it'll definitely make it into a feedback episode or one of the post shows where I feature feedback. 
My name on Twitter is D. Sawyer, and you can follow me there. You can also leave feedback on the blog at www.jdsawyer.net or antithesis.jdsawyer.net. You can email me at dan at jdsawyer.net, or if you're truly courageous, you can send feedback by voice. Either email me an MP3 or call the Antithesis hotline at U.S. area code 206-350-2340. I have to say U.S. now because I keep getting more international listeners. So, a few weeks back, before I was played continually by the landscapers from hell, I was telling you about the three threads that came together to make Antithesis. I told you about the Sting song, Shape of My Heart, and I've told you about the stories I planned out when I was 15 and 16, but I haven't told you about what was perhaps the most important element. And this one goes way, way back. I'm just the right age to remember Star Wars as it was meant to be. You know, before George Lucas discovered that people would pay to watch anything with a lightsaber in it. I saw a double feature of it in The Empire Strikes Back when I was five. I sat up in the front row and watched the galaxy explode in giant 50-foot-high Technicolor, and I was hooked. After that, I'd scrounge the neighborhood for pennies, and every time I had 300, I'd hop along to Toys R Us and get myself a new Kenner action figure. Well, across the street in my neighborhood was a kid, a little older than me, who was every inch as Star Wars crazed as I was, and once we stumbled onto each other, we became inseparable. For the next two years, we played with our Star Wars toys almost every day, or when it rained, we'd hang out inside and watch science fiction movies. Yeah, I grew up geeky from the beginning. When I was seven, my family moved across the country, but from time to time we'd go back to visit, and I'd get to spend an evening or a weekend hanging out with the guy who was my first ever best friend in the whole world. The last time I ever saw him, we went to the movies and watched Star Trek V together, and spent the rest of the weekend plotting how we'd both grow up and make even cooler movies, write even cooler books, and generally rock the world with our visions of the future. Being 13 and a Texan in the late 80s, my friend talked about wanting to write a book about a judge who carries out executions from the bench instead of waiting for the messy appeals process and other procedural mumbo-jumbo. You know, 13 Texan, what can you say? Of course, after that, we grew in very different directions, and gradually the letters stopped, and so far as I know, that's all she wrote. But I did know that he went on a different path and never wrote his vigilante judge story, so when I decided to turn that initial scene about a card player into a novel, I stole his notion. I tried to write a book in which a judge carries out an execution from the bench in the final scene. In the end, it didn't quite wind up working, and I scrapped the idea. But the character of the judge, I kept. You know him as Douglas Reeves, a lunar judge with an uncertain agenda. But I once knew another Douglas Reeves the best friend a four-year-old Star Wars geek could ever have. As far as antithesis goes, that was the final element. Once those three elements were all in place, all I needed was a loom. What set me weaving? Well, that's another story entirely. The feedback keeps rolling in. Most of it I'm going to save for the next feedback episode. But Indiana Jim of the Adventures of Indiana Jim podcast left a comment on the blog saying, quote, Heard about this on the Chasing the Bard feedback show. After one episode, I count you among the very best readers out there, Dan. You really know how to relate a narrative with dynamics. Very, very interesting beginning here. Thank you very much, Jim. I first heard your voice work on T. Morris's Billabub Battings in the Case of the Singing Sword. 
I know the kind of taste you have in this arena, so this is high praise indeed. If you haven't checked it out yet, you can hear some of my short stories on the Sculpting God podcast at sculptgod.jdsawyer.net, and I hope Antithesis continues to hold your interest. All the rest of you listening can hear Jim's voice acting in the Billabub Battings podcast, as well as in Pip Ballantyne's Chasing the Bard. Also, when you have a moment, check out Indiana Jim's own podcast at podcast.indianajim.net, where he podcasts fan fiction and carries on an always interesting commentary on new media. He's also a very circumspect fellow. I saw evidence of this this week when he got involved in a controversy over whether or not the marketing tactic of rushing Amazon is dead or not. Look at his blog. He posts an opinion about it, and then, after carrying on a conversation with others in the community, significantly revises his original position in the face of new information. The internet needs more of this kind of intellectually honest give-and-take of ideas, and Jim impressed the hell out of me this week with how he navigated what was, after all, a passing controversy. There'll be more feedback on the next feedback episode, which will be around about episode 12, and probably more here and there on the ends of normal episodes like this one. With episode 10, I'll also be changing the format a little bit, putting a promo in between the end credits and the post-show banter. So many talented podcasters are helping me out with this by lending their voices or their advice or time on their shows. The least I can do is let their shows speak for themselves rather than just mentioning them in my banter. Look out for my cover story in Linux Journal for November 28th, currently on newsstands. I interview the granddaddy of guerrilla science fiction marketing himself, Cory Doctorow. Also, look for me on the Going Linux podcast later this month, where I talk about the technical aspects of producing Antithesis, a short film that I'm working on for Hutchins Obsidian, and that I now seriously think I won't make the deadline on. But if I don't, I'm going to release it here when it's done anyway, because it's a fun film. And we also talk about some of my other recent articles for Linux Journal magazine. Also, be sure to join me along with Seth Harwood and Chris Lester at Jupiter's in Berkeley, California on October 4th, 7.30pm. We will be at your disposal to hang out, talk about writing, and tell you more than you ever wanted to know about how demented you really have to be to do this for fun. Until next time, will Jim and Allie make it as a couple, or will they crash and burn? Who is this Marjorie character, and what strange people might she bring to the table? And perhaps most importantly, why is Percy on Nineveh selling information to Joss? What is he really up to? Find out next Thursday, and remember, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game. (laughs) 